You know what I, I love to share with people is that you have to tell your truth first. You can think of it almost as like a, a journal, just telling the story that you have to tell, telling it to yourself and getting it down as honestly and vulnerably and truly as you possibly can. And then you can sort of deal with how it's going to be received in the world. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Meditation, mindfulness and creativity. How do they work hand in hand? That's the topic of this week's podcast interview. My name is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. This week I caught up with Albert Flynn De Silver, who's an award-winning internationally published writer, speaker and workshop leader. He's also a former poet laureate and he's written several books including a memoir and a book all about writing, creativity and meditation called Writing as a Path to Awakening. My key takeaway from talking to Albert this week is how meditation and writing are not entirely dissimilar. We get into the differences between the two practices in the interview, but Albert actually hosts a workshop whereby he teaches attendees how to develop a meditative practice, and he also teaches them how to build a writing habit. When I think about it, writing and meditation both involve that you turn up in front of the blank page or sit your ass in the chair and write or focus on the breath. Now, personally, I like to meditate twice a day. It's a practice that it took me, I'd say, eight or nine years to develop. I learned meditation first by using the app Headspace and I took a series of guided meditation courses on Headspace. The meditation courses on Headspace are quite good actually. There is a free course you can take. I think it's for seven days and you only take a few minutes to learn. Then I started taking some in-person meditation courses. I even went away on a meditative retreat. I'd love to go on a retreat that combined meditation and writing in Ireland but haven't come across anything like that just yet. These days, I also use the meditation app Waking Up, which was created by Sam Harris. I like it because it has various types of guided meditations that I can follow. And also Sam interviews guests and experts about the topic of meditation and the different types of meditative practices that are out there. And it's a good way of understanding how you can fit a meditative and mindfulness practice into your writing life, into your creative life and into life overall. I also took a course in Transcendental Meditation or TM. If you're not familiar with TM, it basically involves uh, focusing on a mantra. It's just a meaningless sound for 20 minutes twice a day. It's a bit of a commitment to fit TM into a daily life. I always get one TM session in a day, sometimes two, depending on whether or not I'm doing a guided meditation session. Because I spend so much time working alone, I suppose that's the life of working as a writer or running an online business, I find meditation is helpful for mental health, and also for learning how to focus and gaining a bit of perspective. Meditation is something I guess I wish I'd learned in my 20s, and it's a habit that took me a few years to develop, but which has gradually given back to me over time. If you enjoyed this week's interview with Albert, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store. You could also share the show with another writer on Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. Now let's go over to this week's interview with Albert Flynn De Silver. Welcome to the show, Albert. Thank you so much, Brian. Delighted to be here. Could you give listeners a feel for how you got into writing and what your writing journey to date has looked like? Oh boy. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's a long a long journey and we only have 30 minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you the brief version. Yeah, so I actually 
came about in a, like many people, I grew up in a tumultuous household, alcoholism and a little bit of violence. And so I was a pretty anxious kid and started drinking from a young age and didn't really fit in anywhere. And so when it came time for school, I did not do very well in traditional academics. <laughs> and so I got drawn towards the arts. And uh, one of the beautiful things about my parents, once I got over blaming them for all my troubles, <laughs> is the fact that uh, we did grow up in a household full of books. And they were great consumers of writing, literature, dance, opera, theater, etc. So that was always sort of hovering around in the background. And so I, in high school, I took a photography class. I did a trip to Europe uh, that year, took some of my first pictures. And then when it came time to go to college, I had no idea what to do. You know, they always tell you here in America, what, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What, what are you going to major in? And uh, I learned that you could major in taking pictures. And I thought, wow, okay. I could do that. That sounds like fun. And so I studied photography as an undergrad. And then I didn't know what to do with myself after I graduated and I was painting houses and that wasn't so fun. So I thought I would try and go back to school and uh, send a portfolio to the San Francisco Art Institute and wound up at the Art Institute for a graduate degree in photography. And there I got into all kinds of other things you know, exposed to painting and performance art and sculpture and drawing and video and poetry, which was not something that they offered. But it ha so happened that my art history teacher, Bill Berkson, was a great art writer and a poet. And like not just any old hack poet. I mean, he was very tied into the New York school of, of poets. He was friends with people like Frank O'Hara and Jimmy Schuyler and John Ashbery and all these people. And so there was this fateful night that I wasn't doing anything. I was bumbling around in the art studios and, and Bill came by and said, hey, there's this poetry reading tonight down at the Cal Theater. Do you want to come check it out? I was like, nah, I'm not really into poetry, <laughs> but I didn't have anything going on. So I went and it turned out it was a, a launch reading for the Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. Impressive. Yeah, I've read their anthology of personal essays. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So they do all these big, huge anthologies. And this was kind of a, a new one because it was it was just a very diverse anthology, you know, filled with, you know, all kinds of experimental poetics. And, you know, for the first time, I think in Norton's history, there was women and people of color. And it was just a, an amazing Anyways, they had this huge event at the, the Cowell Theater in San Francisco. I go to this thing, and I had no idea what to expect. And it was an all-star cast. And Alice Notley had flown in from Paris, and Lynn Hygenium was there, and Bill Redd, and all these incredible poets. And I just was, and I remember hearing some lines from a poem by Jack Spicer that were read by um, the editor, this guy named Paul Hoover, who's a, a legendary kind of Bay Area poet and editor and writer. And, and he quoted this Spicer poem where Spicer says, unbind the dreamers, poet be like God. <laughs> and I was like, ah, what is that? And I didn't know what God was or God meant or, but it just, there was so much passion behind the language 
that I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. Write poetry. I wanted to write poetry. I just, I didn't know how, I didn't know what this really meant, but I was so snowed by these writers and their, their approach to possibility and some sort of transcendent creative communication that I totally wanted in. And I should mention the fact that I was kind of flailing in this photography program. I had actually failed <laughs> my year-end review. Like how you fail at art is kind of a mystery, but yeah, they wanted to hold me back <laughs> in graduate art school. But I, I stuck my way through and I found this passion for writing and, and that's when it really began. And you had some success writing poetry, Albert. You became uh, Marin County first poet laureate for 2008 to 2010. I'm always curious, what does a poet laureate do? <laughs> they write poems and they hang out and smoke About, about whatever they want, <laughs> or does it have to be about the local area? No, no, no. It was, I was part of the California Poets in the Schools program. So I taught poetry in the schools for many years. And I was very engaged in that community of teaching. And, and I thought, well, so Poet Laureate is really a kind of an ambassador for poetry. And so their role is really to, to reach out and to, you know, in America, it's, it's not like Ireland where you believe in your poets, you celebrate your poets. In America, poets are very much marginalized and we're kind of on the periphery of culture. And so I wanted to try and integrate more into kind of average everyday, connect with average everyday people and see what their connection to poetry was. So I collaborated with a, a friend of mine who's a sculpt, sculptor and artist, and and we made this giant chair made out of poetry books. <laughs> and we we hauled it around the county and we went, you know, we'd go to like the gas station, we went to the county fair, we took it to the beach, and we would just kind of set up shop and hang out. And we had like a little booklet in the back with a, a flip top, you know, where there was paper and pens and people could just sit in the poetry chair and write whatever came to mind and heart. So that was my big project. And then we created like a little anthology and, and stuff. So nice, nice. And, and at what point did you decide to write your memoir, The Beamish Boy? Oh, boy. Well, you know, I was writing poetry for many years and and I couldn't somehow the form, the poetic form couldn't hold my story, you know, this history that I had of abuse and addiction. And I also started to become very intrigued by narrative and storytelling and what that really meant be outside of poetry. And just sort of wondered, like, could I even write a story? Could I write about my life in a way that might be interesting to other people? And so, because I, I had read, you know, I'd read other memoirs and I was kind of fascinated by the a funny nobody telling their story of transformation. And I had been very moved by these. And so I, I just started experimenting, really, with that and trying to make that transition from poetry to prose and to a, a narrative. And I thought, well, I'm going to do this for myself, right? I'm just going to like tell my story to myself and kind of get it out of my body, get all the gunk and book of the trauma out of my body by telling the story. And, and then I can judge later if it might be worthy of consumption by a larger audience. And after about five years and much editing and challenge, <laughs> I sort of, I came to this notion that, okay, maybe, yeah, I'll put this out there and see what happens. 
five years is is quite a long time to spend on a, a single creative project. Were you also working on other books or poetry at the same time? I was, yes. Yeah, so always poetry. So poetry is always kind of there. I call it the ground of all great writing and the language of possibility. I like that. <laughs> and so it's always there because it's, you know, all great writers, I think, whether they're writing, whether they're musicians and they're writing songs or whether they're playwrights or script writers in Hollywood or whatever, the best ones I feel like have, they read poetry, they understand poetry, they practice poetry. And so it's always there. And um, to, yeah, I was basically, I was working on some poems and, and then I started thinking about novels too. My father had a kind of an interesting story himself and both my father and then I had a, this half brother who had disappeared for many years and nobody knew where he was. And, and so I started thinking about, oh, like, what would it be like to kind of make up a story about my family that, you know, could be maybe turned into some sort of a novel? So then I started getting larger notions of, of narrative in my head and experiment. I always like to give myself a, a difficult writing project <laughs> to see if I can do it. It sounds like you've tried a few genres. Did you find your family had positive or negative reactions to seeing themselves featured in your work? Uh, the memoir, yes. So my, well, my father had passed away in 2001, and my mother was still alive when I was working on the memoir, and she kind of didn't want to hear. <laughs> she didn't want to hear about it. She was sort of, you know, she came from this generation where you didn't talk. There are things you didn't talk about, and your personal life was one of them. And so I think she found it kind of abhorrent. I mean, she's loved me and she loved the idea of me as a poet and kind of a literary person, although she, she feared for my economic stability. <laughs> so she kind of, I didn't like share it much with her. And then as I was finishing up the book, she got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And then she was dead within two months. Oh, And so I, I ended up rewriting the ending of the book and dedicating it to her. Okay. So had she read any of the book before she passed away? She did not. No, no. Okay. So that was kind of a relief, <laughs> you know, in a way. I mean, it wasn't, you know, she was actually the heroine of my story. And I think if she had lived through it and we had come to the point where I could have shared it with her. I think she really would have appreciated it. She would have come to appreciate it. You know, I reveal a lot of difficult situations and, you know, I'm very honest about the challenges and the grief around my relationship with her. But ultimately she was the one who inspired me to become a poet and it wasn't direct, right? It wasn't like she sat down and was like, yes, honey, you should do this. And here are the great poets of the world. You know, there was no sort of tutorial around it, but there was her language, her personality. She was very bubbly. She was an incredibly great storyteller. And she just used like the craziest words. And she kept a great bookshelf and was constantly reading. And so I learned so much from her that I had never, I never really realized until my 30s you know, what a powerful influence she was. Mm, that's good. That's good. So what you went through there, writing about a difficult family situation and overcoming your fear of what people would think is something that holds back many new writers. Oh, yeah. 
And I know you coach writers via your your online program and your course. So w- what advice would you offer if some a student came to you and said, look, Albert, I'm really worried about what my parents or my brother or sister is going to think when they read this section in my work? Yeah. You know what I, I love to share with people is that you have to tell your truth first. You can think of it almost as like a, a journal, just telling the story that you have to tell, telling it to yourself and getting it down as honestly and vulnerably and truly as you possibly can. And then you can sort of deal with how it's going to be received in the world. And if people understand, I think it's also really important to communicate with your loved ones, you know, and tell them like, this is my story. This is my perspective. This is not your truth and probably not how you saw things, but this is the story that I have to tell. And I mean, ultimately, we can't control how people will receive it, right? So I think the important thing is to start with that truth-telling on your own terms. And then you can kind of navigate the difficult waters of of how it's going to be received in the world. After you wrote The Beamish Boy, did you go on to start work on your nonfiction book for writers, Writing as the Path to Awakening? That came a little later. Actually, I wrote a novel. What I call it my warm-up novel because <laughs> it uh, remains unpublished. I like it. I think it's pretty good. I did get an agent through that book in New York, and he loved it, but he wasn't able to sell it. And so I've kind of shelved it. And then in that, in the meantime, I had been teaching at these um, spiritual centers and retreat centers and so forth. And I've been kind of pulling together a curriculum around writing and mindfulness because I had been practicing meditation since the mid-90s, and it had become kind of part of my parallel path in my sort of evolution as a human being, as a creative being. And so I thought about what would it be like to have that book that would be an integration of mindfulness and writing and creativity and what would that conversation look like? So yes, I started. I started after the the novel. Uh, I really got into writing that. Hmm. I, I meditate as well. I'm curious. Do you think there's similarities between meditation and some types of writing? Ah, uh, you know, I think it's there is a kind of zone that we get into when we write. I think it's different than meditation. Because writing, you know, it can be writing, it's one of those things, it's sort of like gardening, you know, where you, you're concentrating, you're focused, you're sort of in this cognitive, it's both a, for me, it's both a visceral and a cognitive zone. So it's a, it's a physical embodied zone, but it's also a, an intellectual zone, and you can lose track of time. But I do think that meditation, sort of a deep meditation is a different thing where you're not engaging the intellect per se at all. You're simply observing. And they're very different activities. People, I think, make the mistake of mixing them up, you know, and say, oh, I'm a, you know, I meditate all the time when I garden and, or when I run, or, you know, even when I write. And yeah, we have to be tricky with the terminology, I think. And not to like discredit, the power of that, like when we're gardening or when we're running or when we're writing and we feel like we're in that kind of 
concentrated zone. That's a very powerful and beautiful place, but it's not quite meditation in my experience. It's more like flow state. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And meditation, as I understand it, is, is um, it, it's a way of being fully concentrated in the present beyond thinking and even at the most deep level beyond embodiment, physical embodiment. So how can meditation help a writer? Because what you've described there, I suppose, is more personal development or overcoming anxiety or mm -hmm. becoming more patient. But it's a little bit different to writing based on what you've just said. Yeah. So I think what happens for me and, you know, meditation is really dependent on people's, you know, I want people to, I want to invite them to check in for themselves if this is true in their own experience when they make that that sort of surrendering effort. But for me, it's in a deep state of meditation, what happens is that, that you enter back into the field. I call it the field is in quotation marks, you know, the, the, the field of, of non-existential substance. I don't know what to call it. You know, the, that which makes uh, physicality possible. And when we can enter back into that field, it basically clears us out, you know, sort of clears the 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 mind clean clears the heart it gives us direct access to a kind of truth and a kind of presence that's very powerful and very nourishing so instead of creating art about our brilliant ideas we're creating art about the truth of our experience the reality of our immediate experience that is coming from the heart more from the heart and the body rather than from the mind and from all the influences that the mind can take on, if that makes sense. It does. It does. It's kind of, you've kind of reminded me of the book Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. Yes, yes, yes. A beautiful book. She actually describes how there's a type of writing where you just write about whatever's on your mind, a type of free writing, and that can be exploratory, which I guess is a little akin to med some meditative practices. Well, yeah, it's kind of outpacing, you know, the way I understand her practice and I do kind of a variation of it for my students is, is really outpacing. And I had the, this is kind of an interesting little story. I had this experience on retreat once with a young woman who, you know, I, I do these retreats, so like five day retreats and, you, you know, you give up your cell phone and, and you give up everything and you're, you're just being there embodied and we meditate and we write and we meditate and we write for five days. And so the big rule is no cell phones. And, um, and I was trying to, to, to begin the lesson at the beginning of this retreat. And there's this one woman that was on her cell. She wouldn't like, like go of her cell phone. And while I was talking, she just kept like, tick, 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 you know, looked like she was texting. And I said, excuse me, you know, we're putting away our cell phones. We're not doing, and she's like, oh, I'm just taking notes. And I'm, I'm actually, you know, this is how I do my writing and note taking. And I was like, what you know being an older guy i was sort of skeptical and so i just kind of let it go and then she uh you know i made the request again for people to put their cell phone and then i offered the writing prompt an idea and out came her cell phone again and click 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 away you know with her thumbs and it looked like she was texting you know like a devious student in class right and then it came time to share and we went around the circle and she wrote she read from her phone and it was the most beautiful, like powerful, immediate, rhythmic, far out writing 
that we all we all gasped like the entire we were just so she wasn't texting a friend she was not texting a friend she was going deep and the way she described it was so interesting she said you know when i'm able to do this because i grew up with electronic devices i'm i'm so fast on this thing i can outpace my self critical mind and i thought wow that's pretty cool right like that's what free writing is is we write as fast as we can to kind of outpace the conditioned mind, the self-critical mind, the self-doubting mind. And then there we can get to the truth, right? We can get to the raw, immediate emotional stuff. That's, that is powerful writing. Mm, I guess I, I guess it worked well for her. I, I'd still have reservations about trying to free write on a smartphone. There's just too many distractions. It's fine for note-taking, but I could find myself clicking into uh, social media quite quickly. Well, exactly. That's the danger. And that's what I was trying to, to express. And I think it's, it's very difficult to do because it is, it's a distraction device. And unless you have some really great discipline, it's hard to pull off. But I just thought that was kind of an interesting little anecdote for, for a grumpy old guy like me who's like, no phones ever, like, but that you could still use this tool in a powerful way to, to access some deeper creativity. So outside of your online work and books, is, is, is that the bulk of your work whereby you kind of bring meditation and writing together in workshops for students? Yes, yes, yes. Unfortunately, it's been primarily online for the last two years. But prior to that, I was kind of running around the country teaching workshops and, and hosting these retreats. And uh, really powerful. You know, the transformations that people experienced was, was just extraordinary. I mean, you probably know this in your work, but but just the the joy of seeing someone's face light up with the sense of possibility, seeing that they wrote something that surprised them, you know, that they didn't think that they were capable of. That's what I live for. Your writing can be transformational. And in, in terms for the meditation side for your students, is there a particular type of meditation that you instruct them on? Well, I've sort of invented a little bit of a hybrid. I came of age studying Vipassana meditation through um, Spirit Rock and, and their kind of mode is, is through that Thai tradition, the Thai forest tradition. But I've studied a lot with non-dual traditions, Vedanta that come out of India. Uh, there's a teacher here in America named Adya Shanti, who's a terrific non-dual teacher. I love the work of Byron Katie, and she integrates um, writing to, to kind of, which is a very sort of specific process, but it is writing-based that, that helps people transcend conditioned mind. And so these are, I kind of amalgamated some of these different traditions into my own style. Hmm. When I look at the themes in your work, meditation, addiction, recovery, spirituality, some of those topics are topics that could emerge in journal writing. Is that something that you work with your students on as well? Well, yes. I think journal writing is a very powerful aspect of writing. And it's, it's, a very, it's an amazing way to, to heal through emotion, to get clarity and to be in a deeper conversation with ourselves. So yeah, every Friday we do a, um, an open prompt class. And for some people, that's journal writing. You know, they take the, the prompt and they run with it. For some people, they have a project and they, they want to write into their poems or they want to write into their memoir or to their novel or whatever. So 
I yeah, I'm a huge advocate of journal writing. I tend to work a lot in in projects, you know, in terms of my writing. But I have found myself uh, lately doing a lot of journal writing, and it's been very interesting to see how it integrates with the what I call writing writing, <laughs> you know, the writing towards a particular project. Yeah, I found journaling is tremendously helpful for kind of source material for kind of long form writing. As in, I can, I can go back and read entries about events or family occurrences that I've forgotten about, and then they can potentially be turned into scenes or stories for, for nonfiction work. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you, you know, you think of someone, I always think of Cheryl Strayed and when she wrote her, her memoir, Wild. And, you know, many people like me were wondering, like, how does she remember all that stuff from her 20s? And, you know, it turns out she had kept a journal while she was hiking on the Pacific Crest Trail. And she went back and integrated some of those journal entries into the reflective memoir writing. So, yeah, very powerful. You mentioned you like to work on different projects. What, what's your current writing project or what's the book that you, you alluded to that's coming out soon? Oh, yes. Well, I'm doing a kind of an experiment. One of my great passions is mountain biking and being in nature and finding, getting into that. We were talking a little bit about the flow state earlier. And so I've been very enamored by this experience of just being in the flow state on a bicycle in nature, in wild places, and how that connects us more deeply to place. So I've written a book called Single Track Mind, uh, Finding Wisdom and the Poetry of Life on Two Wheels. And I've connected with a Swedish photographer, a world-renowned adventure photographer named Matthias Fredriksson. And we have, uh, his photos are just, I think they're so beautiful. They're these just extraordinary landscapes where you, you find a little tiny bicycler kind of in the corner dwarfed by like giant mountains and sweeping vistas and streams of god rays and he's just got a really amazing way of framing things so i've written these five travel logs and he and we're using integrating some of his pictures and we're doing this all on kickstarter as a um as an experiment publishing experience because i've i've published traditionally i've small press published i've self-published but I have not done a crowdfunding campaign for a book project, and so, so how how will that work? I, I've never I've never really explored crowdfunding for authors. Is, is it that they'll when you re- receive a certain amount, you'll write the book, or you use the amounts to fund the cost of publishing, or is it some other way? Yeah, so I've written the book. I have a pretty much of a final draft, and we are raising money to produce it. Yeah, to design for design, production, and distribution of the book under a private imprint. Okay. I'd imagine costs are a bit higher if there's a lot of photography in it. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're budgeting about $25,000 for an initial run. And we're going to do a limited edition hardback. Where will people buy it? So they'll be able to buy it online and through, so we'll have, we have a website, singletrackmindbook.com. And then we'll have distribution through Lulu, I think, is the printer that we're going to use. And Lulu is an online printer. They have connections through Ingram and through Amazon. And so those are kind of the two distribution portals in the States. And then I'm going to have to look into international distribution because I hope that I want to make it easy for people to buy in the UK, for example, (laughs) and certainly in Canada because Matthias is living in Canada. He's from Sweden. 
but he's got a lot of fans around the world. Where else, Albert, should people go if they want to read your work? Gosh, if they want to read the work, well, the website, my main website is albertflindsilver.com. And there is a little bit of an outdated blog there, but you know the books are there and how to connect with the books are there. And that's really the, the best place. Thanks, Albert. It was great to talk to you today. Excellent speaking with you, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, everyone. It's Albert Flindesilver again. Thank you so much for listening. And I wanted to offer listeners to this podcast a free 30-minute strategy consultation call on anything related to writing, editing, or publishing. Simply go to albertflindesilver.com and hit the contact link, and we will send you a link to jump on this free consultation Zoom call. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store or sharing the show on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you're listening. More reviews, more ratings and more shares will help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast. And did you know for just a couple of dollars a month, you could become a Patreon for the show? Visit patreon.com forward slash become a writer today or look for the support button in the show notes. Your support will help me record, produce and publish more episodes each month. And if you become a Patreon, I'll give you my writing books, discounts on writing software and on my writing courses. Thank you.